Okay, everyone. Oh, my goodness. All right, y'all. Nobody likes a priest to yell at them, huh? Uh, uh, before we begin, I have, uh, we've been kind of getting questions left and right. Uh, these are recorded. Uh, they're recorded and they're put on um, our, I don't know, wherever we put our homilies at and stuff like that. You can access it from the website or if you listen to podcasts or music, anywhere you listen to that. It's on the St. Pius X uh, podcast. Right? And it can be accessed through the website directly. Or Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, whatever you're into. Huh? Uh, and also for our final talk uh, on the Seven Sorrows of Mary, I checked. Uh, they have something going on in the church, so we'll have the the talk in here. But I know I kind of brushed up because I um, hopefully there's more people. Right, I look around, huh? Uh, but <laughs> but with being so close to to Holy Week. Um, and I think it's a good reflection uh, to kind of enter into that most solemn time of the church's year. Okay, uh, with all that being said, we'll get started. Okay, this will be a reading from the Holy Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And behold, one came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must be done? To have eternal life. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Only one is good. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which? And Jesus said, You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have observed. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I started off that uh, this talk with that specific Bible passage from Matthew chapter 19 is because that very first question that the young man asked Jesus is what all moral theology is geared toward. His question was, teacher, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the whole driving force. Okay, Uh, in this talk, it. Uh, There's no way I'm going to say everything that I have down, but I kind of broke it up into four parts. I'm going to tackle moral theology in four different ways. The first is just a a general introduction, right? A, a good foundation. The second will be the sources of morality. Where do they come from? And the third will be the moral act. The human act, what makes it moral, what makes it immoral. And then finally, probably the most controversial for our age, the human conscience. Okay, Uh, so just an introduction into Catholic morality. Uh, The story of humanity, it begins that we are created in the image and likeness of God. It is in Christ, the Redeemer and Savior, 
that the divine image has been restored to its original beauty. The divine image is present within every single person. Endowed with a spiritual and immortal soul, the human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. Not for something else, huh? Dirt exists to plant. Plants exist to eat. Humans exist for their own sake. Man, people who are enticed by the evil one, abused the freedom that was given to us. Because by free will, we are capable of directing ourselves to the true good. Free will is a big thing for moral theology. If there's no free will, then there's absolutely nothing moral. You have to be free in order to choose good or to choose evil. Living a moral life bears witness to the dignity of the human being, but enticed by the evil one, we abuse our freedom at the very beginning. We succumb to temptation. We still desire to do good, uh, but we have those wounds. We desire the good. It's just much more difficult now. But Christ, by his death, resurrection, has defeated Satan, won us grace so that we can choose the good. That whoever believes in God, it can be baptized, is a child of God. Okay, that is kind of the forefront. Why did I say all that? Because Catholic morality is not about rules and regulations. Catholic morality is not about restrictions on human freedom. Catholic morality is not about respecting everyone's opinions. Morality is not about relativism. Relativism is something that St. Pius X, our great hero, uh, taught so heavily against. Relativism is everywhere right now. Uh, I've preached on it several times. It's the most infectious thing that the world has ever seen. Uh, relativism means whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. There's no absolute truth, right? It's just, you know, whatever. It's, it's okay. You just don't have to agree with it, right? Okay. Um, and it's not just about human sexuality, Catholic moral theology is about the study of God. Catholic moral theology is about the study of God and our last end, rooted in God. So from the beginning, we focus on the end. That's the very, that's the heart of it. A part of sacred theology which treats God as our last end and the means by which we attain him. So the primary central theme of moral theology is God as our supernatural end. Think of this. If you want to build a house, you're going to need what? Some blueprints. If you want to build a house, you better know how many stories it's going to be, how many rooms there's going to be, how much it's going to cost. You cannot just start building with no game plan. 
I bring all that up because here at St. Pius, we have a de- we have a devotion to building. Huh? We built a church. We're uh, renovating a church. We're renovating that thing. We, we just have a devotion to it. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, Catholic moral theology is centrally about our last end. After that, it is how we attain that end. How do we get? I know I want to get to the finish line. Now, how am I going to get there? That's the moral acts, good or bad, vices or virtues. Catholic moral theology is guided by virtues, the cardinal virtues, essentially. Uh, The cardinal virtues, cardinal means a hinge. So think of a door, right? It opens and closes. But what's holding that door up? The hinges. So you want to enter into divine life? The hinges are the cardinal virtues. This picture that I have up is the virtue tree. These are just essentially a whole hodgepodge of different virtues and how they're connected. All virtue is connected. right? And so, for instance, when someone struggles with something, I, whenever I'm helping them, think about what other virtues or vices it's connected to. For instance... A lot of young people, a lot of people struggle with depression. Depression is a daughter, or is, a, is kind of an offshoot of sloth. Right? And so the, all these vices, all these virtues have something that it's attained to. If someone wants to grow in a certain virtue, I think about, okay, they're trying to grow in this little twig. What's the big branch it's connected to? The bigger virtue, the cardinal virtues would be essentially those. Huh? Prudence enables us to choose the right course of action inspired by the moral law. Justice enables us to render what is due to God and neighbor. Right. So religion, worship of God falls underneath justice. Fortitude enables us to perform good actions amid obstacles and difficulties And then finally, temperance enables us to control our passions in order to maintain a clear mind and strong will. Often people are tempted whenever their passions go awry. So temperance helps us realign that. Let's say Father Poirier has a a big problem with overeating. Well, then Lent is a fantastic time because I'm growing in the virtue of temperance by fasting. Uh, The divisions of moral theology, there's kind of two levels to it. When you you go to graduate school and you go for moral theology and you get your doctorate, you'll know this. Uh, The first one is kind of these fundamental moral theologies, right? So you're looking at basic moral principles, virtues, ethics, whatever. What most people know about is the specialized moral theology. Specialized moral theology would be something like bioethics. Bioethics, uh, ethics in the hospital. Or social teaching. Ethics or moral theology in politics. Or uh, human sexuality. Or the the list can go on and on. Uh, Those are specialized. They kind of focus in on something. Can Continuing with just a a groundwork of moral theology, 
It is a call to happiness and holiness. The moral law is not just about rules. The moral law is about happiness. The moral law puts the human person in a position to achieve happiness. Because the moral law is rooted in love, living by its ideals prepares us for an ever-deepening relationship with God. The promise is that if we totally immerse ourselves in Christ's life and his teachings, we will find in our lives the most rewarding, the most peaceful, and the most spiritually gratifying life. The moral life is a happy life. The moral life is a happy and holy life. That's why uh, Mother Teresa, she'd say, uh, happy saints, no sad saints, no such thing. Uh, A sad saint is a sad saint, right? That's what she would say, meaning no saint at all. That's why these saints were able to be killed for the faith, but yet they're singing or they're telling jokes. That's something supernatural. From a Christian point of view, loving God and loving others allows a person to reach a joy that the world simply cannot offer. Therefore, by living the commandments, we grow in virtue. Remember I said that moral theology, the primary thing is God with the last end in mind, right? So whenever I'm focusing on what is on my to-do list for today, one of the first things I think about is what's going to be on my pop quiz, on my quiz at the end of my life? What's going to be on my top ten? Guess what, people? If I'm seriously, you know, have anxiety about stuff, a good question to ask is, is this something God's going to ask me about? If the answer is no, then get rid of it. (laughs) I mean, because it's not that important. Your top ten, right? What's the top ten things God's going to ask you at the end of your life? That's what you should be thinking about. But the last end is where we derive our morality. Those that advance toward the good of my last end, so what will make judgment for me good, that's a good. What's going to hinder that is a bad. God is approached not by steps of the body. God is approached by the soul. And thus it is human acts that leads us to our last end. Everyone desires happiness. That is a key truth. Every single person desires happiness. Look, there are people that are addicted, uh, that have an addiction to like melancholy or kind of sadness or stress. Like those, those exist. Huh? Uh, but the human, that's an addiction. Addiction goes against what we want. That's why people that struggle with addiction need to get like help. Because they're doing stuff that they don't want to do. Every single person desires happiness and perfection. But not everyone understands how to do it or how to get there. Our last end, which will make us perfectly happy, cannot be in external goods. Because think about it. Wealth, honor, fame, glory, power... 
I can list a hundred people that have that, all of which are not happy. Just because just you have all those things doesn't make you happy. Or it doesn't exist in bodily goods, such as health, beauty, pleasure, and strength. I don't have any of those things, and I'm pretty happy. huh? <laughs> uh, but it's, those things are passing. huh? I can have good health today and bad health tomorrow. Right? I, could ha- I could have strength today, be weak tomorrow. So my happiness can't be something so passing. And then finally, even the goods of the soul, such as wisdom or virtue, because I can lose that too. I can stop studying, or I can my mind grow weak through dementia, Alzheimer's. No, the, the last end is in the infinite good. The infinite good is God. That's where my heart lies. That's where my happiness lies, in the infinite good. The ultimate hope of a child of God is not the glory and prosperity of this world, but God in heaven. That's our hope. The personal decision to accept salvation offered by God must be made in this life, not in the next. In the next life we're judged. At the very moment we die, that's when we're judged. And so the time to repent and believe in the gospel is now. The time to pursue this happiness and this holiness is now. Not at like the end. It's right now. Okay, so that was a that was a very brief introduction into Catholic morality. That's that's a whole lot. Let's go into the sources of Catholic morality. Like where do they come from? Right? So we know we're made in the in the image and likeness of God and that uh were made for happiness, and that Catholic moral theology is mainly about God as our last end, and then also how we get there. But then, okay, this is how we get there. Moral theology is based on divine revelation. The foundation of moral theology is divine revelation. The first one, sacred scripture. Sacred scripture involves a divine illumination. We kind of had our first talk in regards to uh, sacred scripture. Uh, these divinely inspired truths, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, are ultimately designed to assist everybody in attaining salvation through the discovery and acceptance of God's will. That's the whole reason why the Bible exists. So that we can, it can help us get to heaven and live a good life. A happy life in conformity with God. In the Gospels is where we find the central... uh, We talked about this in our first talk. The Gospels is the very heart of all of sacred scripture. Sacred scripture is a bunch of books put together. Uh, what's What's the very beating heart of it all? The Gospels. The Gospels... We find two main sources of morality. The first is the life of Jesus. The very life in which he lived is an example of how we should live. Right? So the actions that he did is an example for us. And then secondly, the teachings. 
in the preachings of Jesus. What he said. So the whole life of Christ and the teachings of Christ. The very source is the heart of morality in the Gospels. However, not all biblical um, teachings are meant to be binding forever. There's plenty of rules in the Old Testament that were contained, that were circumstantial precepts for the Old Testament, that were superseded by Jesus' preaching. So not everything in the Bible is meant to be held on to, especially in the Old Testament, huh? Tradition. Tradition, tradire, the Latin, means to hand on, right, to pass on. It refers to the living transmission of the gospel of Jesus Christ in every age. It's a deposit of faith that's been given in previous ages. Through the tradition, the church in her doctrine, in her life, and worship, transmits every generation what she believes. These are two great quotes by the Apostle of Common Sense. G.K. Chesterton, on how to understand tradition. The first, he says, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking around. And we hear this and everyday language, huh? Back in my day, that would have never flown. Huh? Back in my day, uh, you know, we were taught differently. Well, it, it probably should still be taught that way. Huh? Like, I, very often I get advice from older priests on the proper ways on how to deal with parishes. Because it's the, the tried and true way. Rather than whatever thought pops into my head. Also, tradition is whenever, before you change tradition, G.K. Chesterton says this, whenever you remove a fence, always pause long enough to ask why it was put there in the first place. Okay, this, the third one is the magisterium. The magisterium, I kind of talked about this, this is the, the, the Holy Father and all the bishops of the world in union with the Pope. It's the church's teaching office. That's why the magisterium, magister, means teacher. Magisterium just means teacher. It's the teacher of this age. It refers to the authority of the church. Think of it like this. The Bible is an infallible book. I would find that almost every Christian believes that. Not, we're not even talking about Catholics right now. The Bible is an infallible book. Well, an infallible book needs an infallible interpreter. Jesus Christ would not have given us an infallible book with no one to interpret it. That's like giving us a scroll and no one reads the language. Right? That's why... That's why the church is the moral conscience of the entire world. Because the church has the authority to tell these people, no, that's the wrong interpretation of the Bible. Nope, you're completely wrong. Nope, you're applying uh, sacred scripture in the wrong way. The church has the authority. The church is the only one that has that authority. I don't care what politician is using it for what. They, the church 
has the authority to interpret scripture. Not some random Joe Blow that's trying to push an agenda. The church does. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God has been entrusted to the teaching office of the church alone. Yet this this teaching, the magisterium, is not superior to the word of God. Right? It's the faithful interpreter of it. Doesn't mean it's more, it's better, or it's greater. And then the final one is natural law. Natural law, I think most people would get this, right? When someone says, oh, that person's just naturally good, they mean like natural law. Natural law is something that's written on our hearts. It's something natural to the human person, right? So, for instance, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are all natural law, except the third, right, keep holy the Sabbath day. But the Ten Commandments are just natural. You didn't, we didn't need God to descend from heaven to tell us not to murder innocent people. That's written on our heart because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So natural law is a source of Catholic morality. That's not human. People, they watch the news, and I, I don't watch the news anymore, that, just because you see so many things that are not human on that. Huh? And, and you were able to say that because there's things that's particular to the person, something that's natural to the human person. That's called natural law. And the natural law can never be removed from a person. Even when it's rejected in its very principles, it cannot be destroyed or removed from the, the heart of a person. It always rises again. Always, in every society, no matter what's putting it down. That was the sources of Catholic morality. Okay, that's where we draw them for, those four sources. Next is the moral act. This is, now we'll get these last two parts, we're going to get a little bit into the weeds. Uh, so everything I said is just kind of very generic. Now we're moving into what I think most people expect of Catholic moral theology. The moral act. First, it depends on our freedom. Because if we don't have freedom, then there's nothing more about it. Actions are free if they come from both the intellect and the will. I have to know what I'm doing and I have to want to do it before it's morally good or morally evil. If I have no idea what I'm doing, i.e. a child, well then, it's not a morally thing. That's why kids can't come to confession until they're like seven years old. Because they have to have some idea of what they're doing beforehand. And then also I have to want to do it. It has to come from my will. I can't be forced to do something and then said that's a morally good or evil thing. But our human freedom is not absolute. It's limited. Freedom and knowledge are intimately related. And so my knowledge is limited. It could be flawed. Human freedom is ordered toward the good. But with that freedom comes responsibility 
and God respects our freedom. God is a perfect gentleman. He respects our decisions. God's grace is not imposed on us, but it's freely received. So this human freedom is rooted in reason and the will. As long as freedom has not bound itself definitively to the ultimate good, which is God, we can choose between good and evil. I'm going to repeat that. As long as I am not ultimately bound to God, we can choose between good or evil. I.e., when I'm in heaven, I will never choose evil. Ever. Angels do not choose evil. Demons do not choose good. And so when we are ultimately united to God, then we'll, we won't have the option to choose evil anymore because we've cho- chosen the ultimate good. Remember that freedom, freedom for us, consists in not doing what we like to do. True freedom is doing what we ought to do. That's true freedom. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Freedom is not about what I want to do. True freedom, the freedom that sets my soul alive, is being able to do what I ought to do, whether I want to do it or not. I'm sure most of you are parents. Maybe you don't want to do everything you want to do. But let me ask you, what's worse? Doing it and not wanting to do it? Or not being able to do it? And you're not able to provide for your family. You're not able to do these things. True freedom consists in what we ought to do. The moral act. So first this freedom. Now the moral act. Freedom makes us a moral subject. Because we're free, we're able to do it. Uh, When we act deliberately, we are the father of our acts. We can be held responsible for our actions because we're free to do them. Human acts are freely chosen. They are either good or evil. And so the morality of a human act depends on what's the object chosen the intention, and the circumstances. I'll break those down. Uh, Not every action is a moral act, though, right? So breathing, that's not a moral act, right? We are not morally good because we breathe. That's just natural to us. Uh, For a human act to be considered moral, it must have those three things. The moral object is not just the physical object chosen. It's what I'm trying to do, right? What am I trying to do? For instance, I'm trying to help out this poor person. Okay? The intention can make it either better or worse. Right? So I'm trying to help out this poor person, but maybe I'm doing it so these people can see and they think better of me. Right? I mean, that's my intention. There's got a whole bunch of people that do that. Right? They don't help anybody unless they they take pictures of it. Well, Uh, That doesn't make it morally evil. It just makes it less good. You should want to help people because you love them, not because it gets you a like or something. Uh, And 
But if the moral object is evil, there's, there's, the discussion's over. Uh, it doesn't matter what your intention is or what the circumstances are. So if your object is to kill an innocent person, it doesn't really matter what your intention is, Shaq. You know, that's unacceptable. <laughs> uh, there's, there's such things as intrinsically evil acts that are never justified under any circumstance. We'll get into that in a little bit. The circumstances can help this, like whether it becomes more uh, virtuous or more vicious, right? Um, this is kind of dependent on the person. So the circumstances, of course, the environmental conditions, um, the time or the place, they contribute. Um, so, and also like the circumstance, it can increase or decrease, right? So theft is wrong, but whether you rob a bank or you, you know, steal a dollar, that, that, that changes things, huh? Um, or, you know, if you're doing something because you're scared, that affects things. Are you scared out of, you know, fear of death? People do things that they would typically never do. And so that changes things. Those are the circumstances. Intrinsically evil acts are wrong in and of themselves. Always and everywhere. Regardless of our intentions or our situations. There's multiple intrinsically evil acts. Uh, I've kind of divided up a number of different ones. So the direct killing of the innocent such as abortion, murder, genocide, euthanasia, uh, willful suicide, those are, those are all intrinsically evil. Uh, and I've kind of put like non-consensual sexual acts or offenses against marriage or offenses against human dignity, all intrinsically evil. Venial sin and mortal sin. Venial sin is a small sin. Uh, think of a snowball at the top of a mountain. That's a venial sin. Venial sin does not destroy the divine life in my soul. It doesn't. Uh, but it does diminish it and it wounds it. And it makes me kind of uh, used to having sin on my soul. Right. So I, before I said that Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she'd go to confession uh, every week. Well, she, she didn't confess mortal sins. She confessed venial sins. Right, John Paul II went to confession every day. He didn't confess mortal sins. He confessed venial sins. Because that snowball at the top of the mountain, if I let it go, eventually a mortal sin will happen. Right? And as Catholics, practicing Catholics, we are not called to struggle from one mortal sin to the next mortal sin to the next mortal sin. No, we're, we're called to live the divine life. So these mortal sins, as you grow, will get less less to whether not even present in your life. And then now when you come to confession, it's just venial sins. But you should still come. Because you don't want to get used to that snowball and let it get to the bottom of the mountain. Because when, when, as it keeps going, it's going to gain traction. Then comes the mortal sin. Then comes the mortal sin. Mortal sin is a grave infraction. That destroys the divine life within the soul. There's three requirements to be to have a mortal sin. Every confessor knows this, like the back of his hand. First, you have to have grave matter, full knowledge, and consent. 
Grave matter, the Ten Commandments. Full knowledge, you have to know what you're doing. And then consent, you have to be okay with doing it. For an example, let's say someone comes to confession or they say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been true, I don't know how long. Um, and then, uh, you know, sex before marriage, and that's it. I say, okay, uh, is it expected to continue? Oh, no, Father, uh, they're in jail. I say, well, what do you mean they're in jail? Oh, well, I called the cops. Um, you know, it wasn't consensual. He raped me. Well, now we have grave matter, right? Premarital sex is is a grave matter. They knew what they were doing, right? They knew, but what did they? What were they missing? Consent. They didn't want to do it, so therefore, not a mortal sin, right? And so, if one of those things are missing, no mortal sin. Very often, people may struggle with what's called scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is when they think everything is a mortal sin, everything. And then what, what's typical with someone with scrupulosity is they'll say, uh, I don't I didn't know if it was a mortal sin or not. And so I didn't uh, receive communion right for a year. OK, well, the mere fact that you asked or said that I don't know if it's a mortal sin. Guess what? It's not a mortal sin. Because you don't have full knowledge unless it's an, against natural law, because you just know that. Right. Those 10 commandments. And so if you do, if you have to ask that question, is that a mortal sin or not? Uh, guess what? It's not. It may be once you find out you have the duty to find out. But then after that, you know, but before it's not. OK, now we'll move to the very last one. OK, so we covered just the foundation, a broad spectrum of Catholic moral uh, theology. And now we'll move into the moral conscience. The moral conscience, what it's not. That's important. What the moral conscience is not. Um, it is not with um, a feeling okay. Oh, hold on. First, let me get to this. <laughs> me either. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> we all get lost in the sauce, huh? I mean, uh, you should have seen me for eight years in seminary. <laughs> it was a tough road, but we got through it. Uh, an essential theme in moral theology is the, is the human conscience. And if you pay attention, maybe now that I've said it, you'll hear it in popular culture all the time now. Right, it involves the how to apply moral law to your concrete situations. Uh, the conscience comes from with knowledge. Sum sensia. Conscience with knowledge. The concept of conscience can often be misunderstood. Conscience is not a feeling. The human conscience is not an emotion. It's not a hunch. Or it's not any kind of passion. It's not about the absence of guilt or regret. It's not a theoretical judgment about whether something is good or evil in the abstract. Popular opinion equates the human conscience with feeling okay. 
about my decision, or I don't feel guilty about it, about an action. Or you'll hear this, I ask that you respect my conscience. Your conscience may say this is wrong, but my conscience says things differently, sees it differently. That's why I have a picture of Pope Pius X up there, because he wrote extensively against this just kind of relativism, this invisible target. Your conscience says this, but mine says that. The Catholic tradition gives the highest respect to the human conscience. This is something that personally blew my mind. If the human conscience, well formed, the gloves are off. Well formed, though. If someone says, my human conscience tells me to do this, if it's well formed, I got... If, if it's breaking a law, like a natural moral law or something like that, then no, it's not well formed. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into how to form your conscience. But Catholic tradition gives the highest respect to it. In fact, the Catholic Church says that the, that the human conscience is the spark of the Holy Spirit. That is this very sacredness of man is the sanctuary of God. And it's the soul of the soul. That's what the human conscience is. This is. We're talking about the very highest thing. So what is conscience? The conscience is the interior human voice within the human heart where the law of God is inscribed. That's where God wrote the law on our hearts, the human conscience. Moral conscience is a judgment of practical reason about the moral quality of a human action. The obligation to follow our conscience comes from the obligation to follow the moral law. Man has the right to act in his conscience and in freedom so as to personally make moral decisions. Conscience does not say that like helping the poor is morally right or wrong. That's not what the conscience does. The human conscience will say something like this. Should I give money to this poor person right here? You see what the change in that? Because the first one is true. Whether you personally believe that or not. Helping the poor is good. Now, how we apply that moral good, that's the human conscience. Should I give this money right here to this person? It's very particular. Applying the moral law. That's the human conscience. The human conscience is not where it's a field day, where we just make up stuff. Right now, that's what popular culture says it is. But they make up stuff all the time. Okay, so forming our conscience. Uh, the main thing to form our conscience is knowledge. Right? Like I said, the moral act comes from freedom and the will. I, I have to know what I'm doing. And so the more we know, the better my conscience is. If I willingly stay ignorant all my life, my conscience is going to be bad. The key to correct formation of the conscience is knowing the truth. Because once I know the truth, I want to do the truth. 
Once I know where my happiness is at, I want to get to that happiness. Now you see we're coming full circle, right? Because we're called to happiness. And the human heart will have happiness, but we have a, there's different ideas on how to get there. But once I know the truth, that's how you form your human conscience to do the right. Unfortunately, many people overlook forming their conscience. People do not hesitate to say that respect my conscience and they're right. Rightfully so, people say their conscience needs to be respected. But then they fail to form it. Out of failure. The forming of the conscience begins with the most basic learning. Ten Commandments, Beatitudes, but it doesn't end there, right? So forming human conscience, I put up different ways that people form it. Learning the moral teachings of the Catholic Church. Learning how to apply a conscience in different scenarios. Making concrete, practical judgments. Praying, spiritual direction, avoiding sin, frequent confession, etc. Forming the conscience, you're pursuing God. That's how you form your conscience. So in the formation of the conscience, the word of God is the light of our path. We assimilate the truth, we pray about it, and we put it into practice. Huh? Faith and works. We examine our conscience essentially before the cross of our Lord. I can look at the cross of our Savior and my conscience is put like kind of on the altar to be judged. I examine my conscience before the cross of Christ. Right? There's plenty of examinations of consciences, right? That's out there. Literally, people, you can Google one. Right, just Google examination of conscience for and then type in something about you. Examination of conscience for Catholic priest. Right, I've got to examine my conscience too. And so they give you different questions to see how you do it. Right? So I've, um, examination of conscience. I remember I read one that was beautiful. It was actually on St. Paul on the qualities of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is because we're called to love. And so it calls into question these different virtues, or the Ten Commandments, or the seven virtues, seven lively virtues, seven deadly sins. There's different ways, different examinations of consciences. Probably the most popular one is the Ten Commandments. Now, that's the one we have in the church. One that I've always been attracted to is the seven lively virtues, the seven deadly sins. There's plenty of things to be said about the Catholic moral life. But in a nutshell, I wanted to go over a foundation of it, that we're created in the image and likeness of God, that we're made for happiness, and the moral life is about pursuing that happiness. I want to talk about the sources of morality, where we get it from. So where did you get that teaching from? Well, it's one of those four sources. That's where. Uh, The moral act. The very individual moral act. Not everything's moral. My breathing's not. But when I have to make a decision about something, that's when it becomes moral. And then finally, the human conscience. Okay, that was my, that was my little spiel on the uh, ten, 
that, well, not the Ten Commandments are involved in. Uh, something that I brought uh, is the doctor of moral theology is St. Alphonsus Liguori, who's one of my favorite saints. Uh, it was a big struggle to put this topic together because the doctor of moral theology, kind of what he's known for, he wrote an introduction to Catholic morality. This is it. <laughs> you want to know something crazy? This is volume one of 15. So that's the introduction to moral theology. Uh, it's, it's, a dense, it's a dense thing. <laughs> but he goes over, he says it's an introduction, it's like everything. Uh, there's, no, there's no introduction about it. The first ten pages are introductions. Uh, but that, that's, it's, a, it's a big topic, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Without going into any specialized moral theology questions. That was probably... Probably our heaviest talk, right? Uh, but I wanted to show people that moral theology is not just about a set of list of rules and regulations. It's about a call to holiness and happiness with God. That's the primary drive. Okay? That's my talk. That's my talk. All right. All right. Any questions on that one? Yeah, Colleen. Yes, that in heaven. Right. How do we explain Satan and Catholic? So Satan, angels are created differently than people, right? So at the very moment that they're created, they know everything that they will ever know, right? And and so whenever that angels are created. They choose God infinitely or they deny God infinitely. Right? They, they do not repent and believe in the gospel. And so think of it like this. This is an analogy for our recording. It's an analogy for whatever professors listening to this. Uh, right? So like whenever we die and we're judged by God, we have no more time to repent. We immediately judge by God. We're sent to heaven, hell, or purgatory. And eventually get to heaven. Think of that as like an angel. Whenever they're created. At the very moment that they're created. They either choose heaven. Or they choose hell. And this is important for most people. In regards to Satan. Think of it like this. If you're having a hard time understanding it. Satan sinned. And through his pride. Refused. To ask for mercy. From God to repent. God creates me in his image and likeness. Creates you. When Satan tempts us, he tries to create us in his image and likeness. And so whenever Satan tempts you, that initial sin, okay. But then the greater sin is avoiding confession. Father, I haven't been to confession because this sin is so big, I, I just don't even know. Now Satan, now you see Satan's real masterpiece. Because now he's made you believe that mercy is unattainable. Or it's not for you. That's Satan's big trick. Not that, yeah, the initial sin, okay. The much greater act of Satan is keeping someone away from confession. And so in regards to that, like the angels created different, angels, demons created differently from human beings. Uh, so that they choose God or deny God indefinitely at that moment.
I'm afraid to ask you, but how do we know that? How do you know angels choose immediately, instantaneously? Okay, yeah, no, that's, that's a, an incredible question. How do we know that angels choose immediately? Good theology, right? And so good philosophy, theology. Every priest studies philosophy before they study theology. Every, uh, this, is, this is universal. It's actually universal for the entire Catholic Church. Good philosophy is how I think correctly. Right? And so by studying the very nature of angels as given to us by divine revelation and sacred scripture, being pure spirit, we can discern about them. Right? And so St. Thomas Aquinas is known as the angelic doctor because he wrote so much about angels. Uh, he's just one of them, though. And so by figuring out how the human soul is, how the spirit is, we discern about angels, right? Because angels do not have bodies. Yes? Good philosophy is always tied to good theology. So our question was um, in regards to philosophy, theology, and the understanding of the human conscience. Is it the same? Yes. I remember being told in seminary, and this blew my mind. Everything blew my mind because I didn't know nothing. Uh, (laughs) uh, That every problem in theology comes from a problem in philosophy. And if you have great philosophy, you will have great theology. Because philosophy is the foundation of theology. Right? God builds upon human nature. Doesn't destroy it. Philosophy is our own attempt at knowledge. Uh, which is not evil or bad. Theology supersedes it. But it never denies it. Right. So God builds up human nature. He doesn't destroy it. So, yes, good theology, good philosophy always match, even though theology will talk about things that is just not within the realm of theology, uh, philosophy. So by philosophy, we can discern that there is a God without talking anything about sacred scripture, without talking anything about theology, we can say indefinitely, this is a dogma of the faith from the First Vatican Council, that we can say God exists without ever bringing God into it or, you know, theology. Now, theology will tell me God is three in one. Right? That's divine revelation through Jesus Christ. Yes, sir. Can you talk more about the discernment of your conscience, meaning good, evil, and discerning what that is? I mean, you have that internal conscious voice, but also sometimes you have to be careful because it may be Satan putting bad stuff in your head. So the, remember, the human conscience is not so much about morally good or evil things. The human conscience is about applying the good in your situation. So the example I used is the human conscience does not say that serving the poor is good. That's not the human conscience. The human conscience says, should I serve this good person right here, right now in this way? That's my human conscience. So, for instance, I'll put some flesh on. Let's say I'm driving down 
and I uh, kind of roll up and I see a homeless person, right? I take out my wallet, uh, give, I don't have any food on me, and so I take out my wallet, I have a $100 bill, right? And so I discern, okay, should I give it to him or not? Well, in, in that discernment, I have to see, okay, what well, is this person? Do I know this person, right? I work at the soup kitchen, I know he has an addiction problem. Okay, well, maybe I just drive, I take an extra five minutes, I buy him food, and then I bring him food. That's the human conscience, applying it right then and there, right? The sources of moral theology is where we get whether something's right or wrong. The human conscience is applying it in my specific situation, in the here and now. Does that make this... Yes, sir. Hmm? You said early on that there's a lot of depression among the young. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Now, so he asked that. Is it more depression now than it was? I'm a day or two older than you. In my day. So he asked um, dep- about depression in general. What causes depression, and is there more depression now than in years past? In regards to in years past, I can't speak. Uh, I can't speak on that. Uh, I just one in a real way. I wasn't around. I, I know I could. You could ask priests that are much older than me. That would be able to say, right? Uh, just because we deal so intimately with those those situations, and I'm sure there's statistics on that. Uh, but why? What is because? Why? Because you're seeking happiness in the wrong place. Right, so the human heart will have happiness. That's why I said uh, depression. I just use it as an example for virtue, but sloth, sloth is the mother of depression because sloth doesn't mean you're lazy. Sloth means you're lazy in the things of God. Right, and so if someone's not pursuing the things of God, they're not going to have happiness because what you're going to put your happiness in. Right, those things that I listed earlier, material goods, physical goods. Sloth breeds depression. Because whenever I don't seek happiness in God, I'm going to seek it in somewhere else. The problem is this somewhere else always lets me down. Always. And so even whenever you think it's good, so my happiness relies on this other person, well, look, other people sin. Other people fail or have flaws. And that's why, poop, you, uh, melancholy, depression. And I, I just use that as an example in regards to um, how virtues are connected and how vices are connected. So, With three minutes left, <laughs> Who thinks they is it last one? Okay, y'all look. This was my third one for an intellectual one. This was, I believe, probably my heaviest one. But it is the hardest one to top. Uh, at least for for me, it was. Uh, it, it, for me, it was the hardest one to kind of grapple with and try to present. Uh, the next one, the seven sorrows of Mary, tell a friend and bring them, right? Because this one, it won't be so much intellectual teaching, although study was involved. This was simply to kind of unite our hearts right before a Good Friday to our Blessed Mother. Because nobody knows about the passion of Jesus more than his mother. 
And so that's kind of the fruit of this talk, was to kind of gear us going into uh, Good Friday. Because you cannot have Easter unless you have a Good Friday. Right? The, be- the, the more you enter into Good Friday, the better your Easter will be. Okay, and that'll be next Tuesday, same time. All right, y'all. Thank you.